0: we'll be hearing from this morning will be in 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. If you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one located underneath one of the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. Once you arrive there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 6 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... In him the true in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I just want to say thanks so much for being here. And if it's your first time, thank you for joining us. And hopefully. Uh, someone has shared with you a little bit about who we are here at Providence. We'd love for you to connect. Uh, grab a connect card. Let us know that you are here. Like Ty said, we're in a series walking through 1 John. Um, and this morning, we're gonna continue in chapter 2, uh, continue our discussion on how the gospel anchors us and establishes our confidence uh, that we are Christ and we are Christ's people. Um, and so uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning is, is John has, is, is ending a little bit of his line of logic here. He's going to pick off with a new line of logic uh, next week, but he's kind of wrapping up this first section. And I don't know it doesn't look like it because in the way the chapters are formed, this seems like it's coming in the beginning of the new chapter and kind of cuts off into the middle. But uh, this follows very neatly with what John has said thus far in his letter. Uh, and in particular, uh, he's going to be talking about this idea of righteousness, um, He's talked about how we are sinners, and if we say we have no sin, that we're a liar and that there's no truth in us. And then he's going to talk a little bit about what's the nature of uh, how we should relate to our sin then. Should we, as Paul said, continue in sin then so that grace may abound? Well, John's going to say no. Uh, but he's going to particularly hone in on this idea of uh, what does it look like for us to be righteous then if we are already acknowledging that we're not righteous. And this idea of righteousness is something that's kind of, it, it's not kind of, it is um, riddled throughout the scriptures. Just a few scriptures uh, that are, I think, pretty pertinent, and it's important for Christians to hear. And if we don't think through these, I think that sometimes we can go awry. But I was just thinking of these as I was studying uh, for this sermon. Like, for instance, Jesus shows up on the scene, uh, and many times what we do is we take the Old Testament law, we take the Old Testament idea of righteousness, and we say, well, that was for the Old Testament. Jesus came and forgives us of sin, and now there's something altogether new uh, and we don't have to really worry about that anymore. And then in Jesus' most famous sermon, which we talked about uh, at the beginning of this year in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus looks to his disciples and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. What's well, a pretty intense and terrifying idea and thought, right, because we know that the, the scribes and the Pharisees were very vehemently about obedience to God's law, uh, so much so that they didn't just tithe of their income; they tithe of their spice rack. You know, they would go through and say, "How many, how much uh, mint did I have? We'll, we'll tithe in mint. We'll time in cumin. We'll time and we'll, we'll tithe in, in dill." You know, they were very specific about the uh, about the the law and the Old Testament law. And Jesus says, "Hey, if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, if you're not if you're not even more committed to being holy than they are, then you're not going to enter into the kingdom." Well, that's intense. Um, Or in the Psalms, you know, David says this: Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord was this metaphor of being able to be in the presence of God and his kingdom and his temple. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And he says this: He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Well, from what we know, both through 1 John and through all of the New Testament, and really the whole Bible is that none of us have clean hands and a pure heart, right? Uh, We can't stand before God and say we're clean, that we're pure. Or how about this one? This has always been a great promise that I've looked to, but also I think it has an an edge to it that's kind of tough. In the Psalms, David says that God will withhold no good thing from his people, but he says, from those who walk uprightly before him. And if you look up the definition of uprightly, he's talking about perfect holiness. When we walk uprightly, in holiness, that God answers our prayers, you know? And, and listen, I just kind of handpicked those right off the top of my head. The Bible talks often about this idea of walking in holiness and walking in righteousness. And I think John does an impeccable job here of talking to the Christian about how we should approach walking in the way of the Lord in light of who Jesus is for us in the gospel. And so what I want to do is I want to pray, and if you'll bow your heads with me, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us through these texts and give us some insight both into the righteous one, Jesus, who is perfectly righteous for us on our behalf, and how we ought to then live in light of him. So if you'll bow your heads. Father, I admit that at times it's difficult for me to walk the tension in this line, Sometimes I wrongly attribute your grace, your love, your mercy as a license for me to do what I ought not do or to not do what I ought do, Lord. And I, I ask this morning for myself and for those under the sound of my voice, would you help us to be not just overwhelmingly astounded by your mercy and grace in the cross, but also to be moved to love and obedience. God, make us send to a people who long to be like you, motivate us shape us mold us we need you lord and holy spirit we submit to your word and we ask that you'd open the eyes of our hearts to hear it in jesus name amen okay so first john chapter 2 verse 1 here's how it starts my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin that's how John starts this. Now, this is key. I love, first of all, I wanna make note, he starts with my little children. This is an endearing term from John, and I think what you're catching here is his pastoral heart. And I say this as a pastor, and the first thing I thought of was, wow, this is a really pastoral line, because what John is saying is what I've said many times as I've preached the gospel of grace, because just like in Paul's time and in John's time, in our time, the argument against the gospel of free grace is if you keep preaching that, everyone's just gonna keep sinning because they won't care, that's the argument. When you preach that you cannot earn your own salvation, that Jesus earned it on your behalf and that there's nothing that you could ever do and he gives it as a free gift of grace and that you can't outrun God's grace, when you preach that, the argument against it is now you're just gonna give everybody a license to sin. That's what they said to Paul and that's what they said to John. And so John, after chapter one, where he lines out, this is... Who God is. This is what Jesus has done. This is how you can walk into the light as he is in the light. Then in chapter two, he's going to have this line, which I think is extremely pastoral. I'm writing to you about the lavish mercy and grace of God, not to give you a license to sin, but so that you wouldn't sin. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? He says, the very reason I'm telling you about God's grace is so that you would stay away from sin, not the other way around. John's point here is not to say, it's no big deal, sin's not really a huge deal, and therefore you don't have to worry about it anymore, we can all live free, no, he's saying, I want you to stay away from that which is extremely dangerous, that's why I tell you about a God who loves you enough to die on your behalf. Now watch this, but if anyone does sin, here's the provision, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, now this is key, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I wanna talk about those two words, advocate and propitiation. This is what John's gonna get at. Jesus is our advocate, Jesus is our propitiation. The word advocate is lending itself to an illustration of a courtroom. This idea that God the Father sits enthroned in the heavens and he sits as the judge, gavel in hand, ready to rule justly against sin and sinners. But Christ, our advocate or our attorney, stands up before the judgment seat of the Father and he begins to plead our case. Now, what is our case? This is really important if you read the Bible What is our case before a holy and righteous God? The answer is we don't have one unless someone steps in and gives us a case. Jesus, our advocate, has given us a case and he's done it by being our propitiation. Now that's a big word that you probably don't use, that's a $10 word you're probably not using at the house, you know, when you're sitting down with your kids and family devotion time. Like, let's sing about Jesus being our propitiation not easy, lots of syllables, not helpful for them. You know, I would encourage you to sing, yes, Jesus loves me, you know, the Bible tells me so, that's helpful. But appreciation, I think, is a really helpful doctrine and extremely applicable um, for our Christian life. Jesus tells the eternal judge that the debt that we incurred has been paid in full and that our record is spotless and clean now. There's no legal case against us anymore because someone else has already been charged and punished for the crimes. That's what our advocate is saying to the judge. Jesus laid his life down and paid the price of his sinless life in our place, in the sinner's place. So if you picture yourself in the courtroom of heaven, you have the father who's the judge judging right, righteously, judging justly. And you have us who are on trial and we are guilty. And then you have the advocate or the attorney, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who comes in and says, I'm gonna plead their case, here's the case, I've been their propitiation. Propitiation, if you're taking notes, means turning wrath to favor. Ah, This is important, not just turning wrath to innocence, turning wrath to favor. Jesus did for us what is much more than just cleansing us of sin, canceling the penalty of sin. He took it a step further and imputed to us his righteousness so that the judge not only sees an innocent person on the stand, he sees a righteous person who's being wrongfully accused. That's key, right? So our attorney says, this person is not only not a criminal anymore, but they are righteous. I've imputed my righteousness to them. And as our advocate and propitiation, Jesus performs these two roles before the Father, not only as the attorney who pleads our case, but as the sacrificial substitute that took our punishment and gave us his perfect righteousness. That's what John is saying here that Jesus does. He says, if you sin, you've got an advocate and a propitiation who stands in the courtroom of heaven for you. Now, I wanna turn to a text and uh, this is gonna be Bible drill mode, so get ready. Zechariah chapter three, all right? It's okay if you go to the table of contents, no one's judging you, all right? Zechariah chapter three. So keep, your, keep a finger in 1 John, because we're gonna come right back here. But Zechariah chapter three, we're gonna read this chapter. It's 10 verses, but I wanna give you a little bit of insight here. So Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. When I say the minor prophets, I don't mean like he's a JV prophet. I just mean it's a shorter book, okay? That's what that means. Like the major prophets are bigger books. The minor prophets are are smaller books. It doesn't mean like he gets it right a little bit of the time, but the major prophets, they nail it. That's not what I mean. But Zechariah is, is prophesying in a time where the children of Israel have already been exiled and they're coming back from Babylonian captivity. They're rebuilding the temple okay, the very temple that Jesus is going to be teaching in, they're rebuilding this place, and they're trying to get back through the, uh, the rituals and the rites and the sacrifices. They're trying to reinstitute the priesthood, because they want to get back to serving God again after being in Babylonian captivity for seven years. And Zechariah the prophet has a vision. He has a vision of a man named Joshua, who at this time was going to be the first high priest back in Israel, okay? And Joshua the high priest, now it's important the name Joshua, I think there's tons of uh, allegory here. So we all know Joshua, the one who, you know, towers of Jericho fell down. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you know charismatic songs about that, right? Walls will come down. Do You remember that song? That's Joshua the captain. This is a different Joshua in the Old Testament. This is the high priest. But nonetheless, the name Joshua means savior or God saves. Similarly to Jesus' name, right? So you get this picture of this Christ-like figure, right? Now, What's important is that this guy, Joshua, he's a high priest, which if you put this in your mind, there's a lot of things the high priests do, but I would say primarily the high priest is meant to represent the people. He intercedes for the people on the people's behalf. So the people or the sins of the people represented in the high priest when he stands before God. So when when the priest used to go into the temple and he would do the blood sacrifice in the holy of holies, he's interceding and he's bringing with him atonement. He's bringing propitiation, right? He's bringing this this lamb that has been slain that will make atonement for the sins of all the people. And he's standing in the the holy of holies. So now Zechariah is going to get this vision of standing in the heavenlies with Joshua, the high priest, God sitting on the throne. And there's another character that's introduced. Now, I I chose this text because I think it's really helpful to to think through what John is saying to us about sin and righteousness in chapter two. But here's what you're going to have to do with me. At the end here, there's a little bit of apocalyptic language, okay? Don't get distracted. I think that's really helpful for some, a whole other point. The big point of this has, has much more to do with who Jesus is for us, okay? And what Jesus is going to come and do. But there's gonna be a little bit of, of opportunity to get distracted. So let's focus on verse one, chapter three. I'm just gonna kind of read through, stop, read, just hop, read, we'll go back, okay? So Zechariah says, then he showed me, In a dream, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head and clothe him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Now let's walk through this a little bit. we got the priest standing before the throne of judgment, right? Or the father's throne. There is a, a fallen angel Okay, we know this character very well, spoken about regularly in the Bible. His name's Satan, the head fallen angel, whose whole role in this entire dream is one thing, and he's the only one in your whole Bible that is, that is called the accuser. No one else is called by this name. His role is to come and accuse Joshua the high priest of his sin in front of the judge. So he steps in and starts accusing him, saying he can't be that person, he can't be the high priest, they can't reinstitute the temple, and here's why, here's the laundry list of sin that these people and him commit. He starts accusing. Here's the thing, the Bible says nothing about the, that Satan was wrong in his accusations, that actually he was right, right? Oftentimes, Satan's a liar, he might accuse us of things that aren't true, but here, we don't get any of that. It doesn't say that now, you know, Joshua was a righteous guy, it doesn't say that. In fact, most likely, most commentators say that for them coming back from Babylon, they probably broke all sorts of laws. They probably were all sorts of unholy because they had been so regularly inundated with Babylonian culture that they didn't even know what was right and wrong. They probably did some real quirky stuff and Satan's rightly accusing of this, of this whole sinful track record. And that makes me, just a side note here is when we sin, we give Satan material to work with <laughs> in the accusation department, right? Right? When we sin, he has an opportunity to say, see who they are, see how they are, see how they act, and he's, that's what he's doing here. Now watch how God responds to this, though. God responds, now here's our advocate standing forward, the Lord, says, the Lord rebukes you, Satan, stands against you, silences the mouth of the accuser. The Lord rebukes you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, I've chosen this people. These are my people. I rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning this is the one that I've pulled out of, the destiny of destruction. These are my people and I stand against you, advocating for Joshua. Now, what happens next? Well, what happens next is what I think John is saying Jesus did for us and I have reason to believe this because in a minute he's gonna say just that is that God does what happens to you and I when we put faith in Christ. Number one, Joshua is standing before the throner of God, not with his high priestly vestment on, but he's standing before the throne of God, filthy and dirty. This is an allegory to how we stand before God in our unrighteous state, right? In need, all of us sinful, all of us broken, all of us dirty, all of us in need of cleansing. And God's response is, Remove the filthy garments from him, so take away the sin, cancel the sin, take away the dirtiness, right? This is what we get with Christ on the cross. The debt that we had incurred is canceled. The nasty uncleanness, we are cleansed by Christ. We stand clean but that's not the only thing that God says to do. Then he says, once you've stripped him of the filthy garments, once you've stripped him of the sin, now I want you to put a pure vestment on him. Now I want you to clothe him in righteousness. Now I want you to clothe him in something altogether new. Jesus not only cleanses us from sin, then he says, my vestments, my righteousness, my perfect sinless record is going to be applied to their account. I want you to clothe them in my righteousness. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. All of our filth for all of Christ's righteousness. That's what happens upon conversion. That's what happens upon regeneration. That's what happens when you and I place our faith in Jesus. Filth gone, we inherit righteousness. And now we stand before God, not just innocent, but holy in favor, right? All right. Now watch this. Then there's a turn here in verse six. And the angel of the Lord assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. If you wanna box that, we're gonna get back to it later in 1 John. Notice here, all I'm gonna say is that once God cleanses us and gives us his righteousness, the next thing he says is we ought to live in the same way in which he lived. Okay, let's continue. Verse eight, verse eight, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, underline this, the branch, big B, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of his land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will be invited as his neighbor, to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The branch is going to come and he's going to fulfill everything that you just saw. That's the big idea. So Zechariah is hearing from the Lord. The picture that you just saw is what the branch, capital B, will accomplish in a single day on Calvary, for us. That's the big idea of Zechariah. He's saying he's pointing to Jesus, who will be the true Joshua, right? that when Joshua comes before God and he stands filthy, the true Joshua, Jesus will stand before the Father completely clean and then he'll take his place. So Joshua will now be clean and Jesus will take the place of the unclean sinner on the cross and he'll pay the penalty forever so that you and I can stand before God clean and not just clean, in favor. Okay. Now, if you'll turn back to 1 John, there's a lot that we have to do that I think is really helpful. And I think this is why John's talking about these two ideas. John Piper says this, if we cannot claim to live sinless lives, and let's all agree that we can't, then the only thing that can keep us from despairing before a holy God is that we have an advocate in heaven. And he pleads our case, not on the basis of our perfection, but of his propitiation. Say that again. What keeps us from despairing before a holy God is that we have an advocate in heaven and he pleads our case not just on the basis of our perfection being cleaned but on of his propitiation which means he also gave us his righteousness and that gives us favor before God. Now, let me read verse 1 again and see how it makes so much more sense in light of those two terms. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin pastorally, I don't want you to walk in brokenness. I don't want you to walk in death. I don't want you to go down that path. Ultimately, sin is the, is the biggest deceiver because sin tells you and promises all of these great things. And then in the end, it never delivers on the promise. I don't want you to go that way. But if inevitably you fall into sin, John, the pastor says, we have an advocate with the father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the key, the righteous one. The only one that's ever been righteous. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ forever stands as singularly, perhaps one of the most important attributes of Jesus on earth, that he was perfectly sinless, born of a virgin, not of the seed of Adam, but of the seed of heaven, so that he could stand and plead on, you, on our behalf before a righteous God and impute his righteousness to us. Now, walk with me on this. If we were to go back to those scriptures that I quoted earlier, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly before him. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How could we ever get there? Friends, only if Jesus Christ, the righteous one, has imputed his righteousness to you. And when he does, then and only then can you be the one who stands before God and know that God won't withhold from me a good thing because I'm his child. I can not ascend the hill of the Lord, but... Christ has already ascended the hill of the Lord on my behalf, and I'm with him. Wherever Christ is, that's where I am. So now I get to be with God. This is the gospel, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you and to me. Now, here's what I think John is saying. Now, walk with me on this, because this was tough even for me to get through, but it's really good, it's really helpful. So listen here. First, there's two major things that are applicable here. Number one, if Jesus really is our advocate, he really is our propitiation, then we can be sure that we have eternal life because eternal life is not based on your righteousness, but on Christ's. So when you sin, even if your heart condemns you, and I would tell you, Christian, you need to know that the enemy is very keen on condemning you and accusing you, he's very good at it and he's done it for a very long time. So many times I have found that Christians that struggle with their eternal assurance, they struggle because they listen often to the accuser's words about who they are and they don't take the next step, which is to say, but Christ in me. That is our assurance, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, there's a part two application here, and it's this. If Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation, it will lead us to hate the sin that has killed our Savior. That's the next step. It doesn't mean simply because we've been washed clean that now we can still have the same relationship to sin that we used to have because love has so changed us from the inside out that we'll begin to hate the sin that killed Jesus because we love Jesus. Spurgeon says it like this, we cannot domesticate sin like it's our pet, but rather, we must hate it and hate its effects. He says you shouldn't domesticate sin. Don't treat it like a pet. Says you have to hate sin. John Owen said it like this, either we're killing sin or it's killing us. There's no third direction. Sin is a dark, evil, destructive, very effective tool Satan hates death and that's ultimately where he wants to lead you. And so sin is his way. And he'll tempt you in a number of different ways, whether it's the flesh, the world, or even in his own satanic influence, demonic influence. These are all ways that he tempts us in order to believe lies. We'll get into that a little bit later in 1 John. But here the idea is if Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation, we will hate sin because we love Jesus. Okay, how do I know that? Let's start in verse three. By this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, he's a liar, the truth's not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we're in him. Whoever abides says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's saying the love of God's only perfected in those that Walk according to the commands of God. So what does this mean in light of what we just said? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that perfect love is earned by perfect obedience, unless you're talking about Christ's obedience, which in case is true. (laughs) One one pastor I heard say it like this. It's like, the whole world is works-based religion, even Christianity. The only difference is Christianity is based on Christ's works and not our works. So we're a works-based religion only if it's Jesus's works. If you're talking about our works, it's only grace-based because there's no way you and I can be what's necessary. Does that make sense? So, is it earned perfect love? No, not from us. We are made perfect and whole, not through adherence to the law, but catch this, through God's love for us and our response in loving God in return. The word perfected here in 1 John means completed or complete, whole. Therefore, the idea is that God's love is completed in us or made whole in us when we receive and respond to him through loving obedience. And I think the idea of being complete is important here because the idea of complete and whole is also used throughout the scriptures to mean holy. I think you could probably put holiness, Old Testament also is equated to wholeness or completeness. It's the divided self that walks in unholiness. It's the whole person that living in light of God submits themselves to Jesus that walks in holiness. It's the broken that walk in unholiness, and only Christ can make us W-H-O-L-E, whole, and only Christ can make us H-O-L-Y, holy. Does this make sense? So we are not righteous on our own, and we're never gonna earn our own merit by our righteousness. Even on our best days, we're gonna battle with sinful tendencies and unholy longings in our firstborn nature. But, and this is key, but our righteousness is rooted in our relationship, union, and abiding oneness with Christ alone. As our love for Jesus grows, our hearts and desires begin to change and become more inclined to obedience, obedience and holiness. And as we are seen as righteous, it's not because we're always getting it right. This is key. It's because Christ loves us and we love him in return. That's the difference. The best motivator for obedience is love. Meditating on the love of God for you, fanning into flame your love for God. That's the call of Christian love for God. And I don't think we talk about this enough. I'm not only obedient because God is wise and true and righteous and holy and powerful and worthy of all of my submission. All of those things are true, but I'm looking to become a man who's obedient because I know the love of God for me and I love him. Now, I wanna take a pause here and think about human relationships. And if you're not married, that's okay, because I just want you to walk with me on human relationships in general. I think marriage is a great uh, starting line here, but think through Falling in love with someone, or think through uh, any friendships that you have. Do you appreciate wives on Valentine's Day? If you get a vase of flowers and it's beautiful, it's everything that you ever—all the flowers that you like—and you come in there like, "Oh my gosh, thank you so much! I'm really excited about this." And your husband says, "Yeah, wrote it down in the calendar about a year ago, planned it, ordered them, you know." Uh, I looked up on your, on your uh, I looked in your journal, heard you like lilies, so found out that too. Uh, it's good, right? Okay, here's where, our, here's where our reservations are tonight. I've kind of already planned all this stuff out. Hopefully you like that too. And it, it's not really about the relational interaction. It's like he has robotically figured out everything about you and now he has applied that. Are you like, oh my gosh, it moves my soul? Now I know there's some of you that might be a little more type A and you're like, yes, it actually does. I appreciate that organization but I would guess that for the most part, what you want most of all is the heart to be in it, right? Guys, you probably heard that from your wife before where, where she told you to do something that she likes and then you did that thing and they said, and you didn't understand why she was mad at you or still frustrated. You're like, I did the very thing you told me to do. Yeah, but your heart wasn't in it. Or like, why are you mad at me? I took the trash out. Yeah, but you know, I had to tell you to do it. It's like, what do you want from me? I'm not a mind reader, right? But nonetheless, what's the real idea? The heart in the relationship matters the most. And it happens both ways. It's not just uh, female to- towards male, it's male towards female. You could take this all the way to the very rock bottom of physical intimacy. If the heart is not in it, it's not what it's meant to be. Doesn't matter if, that, if the act happens, right? And this is true of our relationship with God. Ultimately, I think that the highest level of righteousness and holiness is not moral perfection. It is a humble and loving heart for God that desires to be obedient to Jesus simply because you love him, because you've been moved by his love for you. And it's in that imperfect pursuit of the cross that our righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees were those whose hearts were not with God even though their lips praised him. Jesus says, your lips say the right thing, but your hearts are far from me. In other words, you are really obedient, but you don't even know me. And the Christian's the opposite. The Christian is the one who longs to know Jesus and to love Jesus because you've been absolutely encapsulated and captivated by his love for you. And therefore, you want to be obedient from that. And listen to me, guys, and sin breaks your heart, not just because it's morally corrupt on the ledger, but because it's messed the relationship up. You're broken for it. And this is the best because true love includes things like submission. It includes things like sacrifice. It includes things like death to self, but it's in the context of a deeper and greater desire that is born of affectionate love. Not just out of this, well, I gotta do it because God said, because no, I love him. That's why in 1 Peter, you even hear that tone when Peter tells the, the Christians that he's writing to, He says, one day you will see him and you're blessed because you'll see him but you love him and you don't even see him now but one day when you see him face to face, it's this delight, this consummation of the one that I've loved that I haven't seen with my own eyes. Peter's assuming the fact that every Christian has this deep longing and love. So, lastly, and maybe this is where I've really been hoping to get to, um, Verse six has always been a, a verse that just gets to me. And it moves me in a number of ways, but I wanna read it briefly and kind of walk through this. We don't have tons of time, but. He says, by this we know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but Jesus had this very famous saying um, as he's talking to his disciples. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Y'all ever heard of that? I'm the way, I'm the truth, John 14. When I think about Jesus saying that he's the way, and then I go here to 1 John where he says we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Something that has changed uh, and I hope matured my walk with Jesus over the years is looking at Jesus' life in the Gospels just as a, a man and finding it to be so beautiful and enchanting and Captivating, and it's just altogether different from anyone I've ever seen, and primarily different from the way in which I live. J- Jesus' life is just something altogether different. I mean, um, his love, his kindness, his patient listening, Jesus' curious and humanizing questions with people, his direct and fearless discernment in the face of people who have power. His fierce loyalty to his father on the cross, Jesus' loving care for his mom. His forbearance with his disciples when they like get it, but then they don't get it, you know? It's like Peter gets it, it's like, you're the, the rock, you're the one, you're the son of the living God. It's like, yes, and it's like six verses later, get behind me, Satan, you guys know? It's like this just forbearing love, he's just dealing with these guys. His courage on the door of, doorstep of death, Jesus his humility in the face of scorn and pride, these people who have no power that's not been given to them by him and his humility, it's, his way of life is just enchantingly beautiful. And what I see here is, is John's encouraging us to try and mimic the way of Jesus' walking. That part of what it means to be righteous, and I would consider it maybe the main thing, is not an adherence to a moral code, it's a real life that's already been lived before you the doctrine that in the early church and in church history it's called Christus exemplar Jesus our example now listen to me you can't live like Jesus your example unless you have Christus Victor Jesus our victory but i think we have long lost Christus exemplar we just we don't even think through like well how does Jesus live how would he live in this moment how would he talk when I was growing up, um, one of the first—I was not a Christian growing up—but I remember attending a youth camp, and I also our youth group, and I also remember the first time I saw one of my friends wearing these little WWJD bracelets. You guys remember these? Uh, I railed against these as a youth pastor, by the way. So, just full disclosure—I um, just made fun of them. I said it's not about what Jesus would do; it's about what Jesus has done. And then I would go off on the gospel, you know, which I still agree with. But. Um, but I think there was something about these. The idea was that you would have these bracelets, say WWJD, and then as you interact in your everyday life, you would look down and say, ah, oh, huh, how would Jesus do this? Like, you know, I'm at school and somebody's making fun of me or somebody's pushing me down at the playground, whatever, when I'm little. It's like, hey, what would Jesus do? And I try to apply that. And I used to kind of make fun of that. And I think the older that I've gotten, the more that I realize that there's a beauty there that has been lost which is that we don't even consider what Jesus would do because we're not encapsulated, captivated, challenged, enchanted by his life. We think of his way meek and smarmy. We think of his way weak. And we think, well, he had to do that in order to die for me, but I've got to do my own thing. So we get in political arguments online and we don't even think about what Jesus would do because it doesn't matter. We interact with our wife or our spouse. like It doesn't even matter what Jesus would do because I... He didn't live in my time. He didn't have my circumstance. He didn't have my situation. We think about in, in leadership terms, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus stooped down and washed people's feet. We don't even think in those terms. We just think about exerting authority. We don't even consider what Jesus would do. And I would challenge that the only way to walk in the way that Jesus walked is to consider his way and it has to be beautiful to you. Ray Ortland said this about the way of Christ. He said, truth is more than just valid it also opens our eyes to the loveliness of everything that is of God. Think of that for a second. Jesus's way is more than just true. It's beautiful. It's enchanting. It's life-giving. When I look at Jesus's way, I say, I want to live like that. I want to humanize people like that. I want to be able to have a conversation with someone and not be threatened so much by their disagreement with me that I pop off. I want to be able to walk up to the counter and not be so infatuated with my own inner life that I treat the barista at Starbucks like a transaction. I wanna see them for who they are. Jesus's way of life is altogether beautiful. And it has endeared me to him in a whole different kind of way. And I think that that's the difference we see in the John of the Gospels as he's walking with Christ, and then in 1 John as an old man when he writes the book of 1 John. Why is John so much about love in 1 John? Because he's been endeared to who Jesus is over the course of many years. There's an old tradition that says that John the Apostle, upon his uh, old age, right before his death, that he couldn't walk anymore. And remember, John's the oldest disciple. He, he lived longer than anyone else. That he was laid down on a bed and that they would carry him through the churches and that he would, he would only have one line because he could barely speak and he would grab the hands of the parishioners of the churches and say, love one another, love one another, love one another. And obviously this is tradition, but why would John be the one to say that? Because he had been endeared to a man who lived a life of love, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Friends, I wanna encourage you, read the gospels and make note of how Jesus does and says the exact opposite thing of what normal people do and say. Just do that. Make that a goal for you at the end of this year. Read the gospels and say, I would never say that, I would never say that, I would never say that, I would never do that, and it's almost everything he says. It's like I'd say the exact opposite. Meditate on the wisdom and the grace that he shows. Keep your eyes open in community as brothers and sisters exhibit Christ-like behavior and speak to them in honoring ways. I wanna end in this way. Can you sense the beauty of Christ's way of life bidding you forward this morning? If you're not a Christian this morning, um, I wanna encourage you, the beautiful life that Jesus lived was broken and given for you, to cleanse you, to give you favor before God. It's no small thing. Jesus was a perfect man and he was broken for you. I wanna invite you in. Christian, this morning, I wanna ask you, in the gaze of Jesus, can you sense how wonderful and beautiful a life of love and obedience to him would be? There is truly no one like Jesus. I wanna ask you, do you want to be like him? I want you to wanna be like him. I want to be like him. And I think that what John is encouraging us with this morning is that although we may sin, the gospel of grace is the only motivator to be like Jesus. If we live a gospel of works-based righteousness, it will never motivate us to live a life of humility and love like Jesus lived. But if we preach the gospel of free grace and we sit people before a savior who loves them and tell them, look in his eyes and find what is true, that only that will truly motivate them to be like Jesus and walk in the same way that he walked. If you'll stand to your feet, I wanna pray for us. Jesus, we confess to you that there are so many areas of our lives where we cannot and we do not walk in the way that you have walked. But Lord, it's my longing, it's my prayer, it's my request, would you make us want that? I pray against despair in the room and instead bring a hope to our hearts. Jesus, although one day we will all stand in the courtroom of heaven, we will have the Father's delight if we but cling to you, our advocate, and our propitiation. No matter our standing, of sin, no matter our record of unrighteousness. Jesus, you've done everything that needed to be done, not just to cleanse us, to make us right again, to make us a whole, to make us favored. And so now, Jesus, for those of us who are in you, would you help us to live lives in the way that you lived your life, submitted to the Father, full of love, full of truth, full of grace. Oh, God, help us to engage with our world in a way that displays the beauty of the gospel. Thank you, God, that you long for this too. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen.